You are listening to Dracaris, a House of the Dragon podcast, where we review every episode of House of the Dragon. And today we are doing episode six, The Princess and the Queen. This episode was written by Sarah Hess, and it is directed by Miguel Sapochnik. And we are now officially more than halfway into the season, and this is our first significant time jump, and we finally get to meet adult Rhaenyra and adult Allison, played by Emma D'Arcy and Olivia Cook. What did you think about the time jump, Whitney? It took me a minute to realize how long the time jump was, but good old Laner, he said it was 10 years. So now we're 10 years forward. I didn't mind it. I thought the previous episode ended on a good note with how the characters' childhoods were ending. So moving the story along to progress, going to the time jump, I was fine with it. I thought each actor who overtook the roles. That's really been the big thing. I was was curious, like, what you thought, not having really read the books. Did it feel like these were the same characters to you? Yeah, I think they did a seamless transition. I can see these actors being the grown-up versions of these characters. So, yeah, I was okay with it. So, for me, coming in with the book knowledge, Emma D'Arcy and especially... Olivia Cook as Allison, they feel like the characters from the books to me. Um, it was really cool seeing the younger versions. It did a fantastic job of making you care for both characters. But I think the more we see of Emma to Arcy, I think they will bring Rhaenyra to life and show even more of her nuance from the books. But Olivia Cook, from like the moment she was on screen, I was like, that is the Allison I know and loathe from the books. And I mean that in like the best possible way because you're not supposed to like her and it she very much feels like Allison to me. Yeah, I already don't like her from the first (laughs) scene that she was in. I was like, all right, I felt sorry for you for like a millisecond. And now I just want you to burn. (laughs) Will that be her end? I don't know. (laughs) I I know there was a lot of concern on the internet because everybody really, really loved the younger actresses. And they were fantastic. But like the entire time from having seen the trailers, I was like, no, I'm not worried. I already know they're going to be amazing. So... It was really nice to see them in action. The episode title comes directly from the name of the short story that first appeared in the anthology Dangerous Women, which tells the story of the Dance of the Dragons from the moment it actually kicks off. So it felt like a very, I would say of all the episode titles, this felt appropriate. We meet older Rhaenyra as the princess and that power dynamic and power struggle with Alicent as the queen. Yeah, that is very present in this episode. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the intro, they added new sigils. I didn't notice it the first time we watched it because I skipped it. When I was watching it this morning, I tried to notice it and I did not. So they added several new sigils. So it looks like I couldn't for sure make out the future Aegon II with Aemond, and I'm sure Helena's there, but I did see a high tower symbol, so I would imagine those branches are Allison's three kids. You see Rhaenyra's symbol now connected to, 
I couldn't tell if it was Lanor's or Harwin's, but mm-hmm. from there it branches down into three and you see the three boys for Jacaris, Lucerys, and Joffrey. And then you also see Damon, his sigil with his two daughters, Bela and Rayanna. But yeah, so if you go back and like watch it from a few episodes ago, this was the most significant update to the intro. They made quite a few additions to it and changes. So it was kind of cool. Oh, I will probably watch like every episode's intros now and see if anything significantly changes or subtly changes. There are going to be more children that are born. So there will definitely be more vigils. I wonder if they'll cross them out as people kind of die off. That'll be interesting to see. Um, our Don't first... give away spoilers, Rachel. <laughs> People are going to die. Three people die in this already, so (laughs) we haven't even started. Our first scene is Rhaenyra giving birth to um, who will be Joffrey. And you really feel the weight of a woman behind the pen with this scene. It's a very uncomfortable scene, just as, you know, giving birth isn't comfortable for anyone in that position. Before you even see Emma D'Arcy as Rhaenyra, you hear her panting and sweating as... Rhaenyra is in the process of giving birth. She is full of sweat. Her hair is pinned to her face. And it very much felt like a scene that mirrored the scene with Emma when she died in childbirth. Rhaenyra even looks like Emma in this scene. I felt the exact same way when I first watched this scene because she's sitting in the same chair, right, that Emma was laboring in in the first episode. And she said, one day you're going to sit in this chair. This is our lot in life. Our battlefield is childbirth. And um, I didn't realize it was the same chair. I didn't catch that. But I do remember that line specifically. It might not have been the same chair, but it was very similar in that she was sitting in a chair in the same, like, it was basically the first shot that we got of Emma and then of adult Rhaenyra, even though she had two births off screen. Yeah, the uh, the squelching sounds were <laughs> a nice <laughs> effect that made me cringe. Again, I've never given birth, but it felt accurate. They also showed that the afterbirth is basically a second birth. Interestingly enough, this is a successful birth. Rhaenyra seems to give birth without any real complications, which will be a parallel to the scene that happens at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is just one problem here. The baby does not look like a Valerian. What do you mean? (laughs) It is a white baby with dark hair. I know I mentioned this. One of the interesting changes from the books to the show is that... Rainies, which would be Lenor's mother, she's half Targaryen, but she's also half Baratheon. So in the book, she actually has black hair. So despite the fact that everybody in the books, they know these kids still look like Harwins, it's not a secret. It is a little easier to try and pass it off and say like, yeah, we know it's rare, but they t- they clearly take after their grandmother on their father's side because she has dark hair. So in the show, they don't really leave any room for doubt whatsoever, which consequently enough makes Rhaenyra look even more short-sighted in this episode because of that change. Yeah, but I'm curious, Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong. House Hightower, they have brownish red hair. Why are all the kids blonde? Is that not a recessive gene? I'm just asking. I don't know. (laughs) 
I, I don't know the genealogy of Westeros, although uh, the Targaryen hair does tend to be the more dominant trait. But, you know, good point. Maybe they could have... Well, there's no question that Allison gave birth to those children, though, so that's kind of... <laughs> yeah they don't necessarily look like her but there's no question that they come from her i guess i'm just trying to apply scientific logic to sci-fi fantasy i just gotta stop Mm. i mean it makes sense to question it it's just it's different when the paternity of the father is in question and if if this whole episode seems weird to people that anyone would care this much um there is historical precedence for it i think Louis XIV's wife, it was a slanderous rumor, but there was a rumor that she gave birth to a black baby and her servants whisked it away. So Louis tried to use that as an excuse to say she had an illegitimate affair or her rivals for him did. I know I've mentioned the Mary Queen of Scots thing where she had James VI and everyone was whispering in her husband, Lord Darnley's ear, that Mary was getting very close with her Italian secretary, David Rizzio. And, and because Darnley was easy to manipulate, he got jealous and basically orchestrated Rizzio's murder in front of Mary while she was pregnant. And then, of course, you had you have the Tower de Nessel affair, which were... Three French women who were married to three princes of the blood in France, and they were caught cheating. One of them ended up dying very suspiciously while in the Tower de Nessel. The other two live, but they have their own curse of the Capetian kings. I don't have the time to get into it, but long story short, one of them survives. There's a succession of deaths among the princes, so when it comes time to decide who will rule the daughter, her paternity is in question because her mother was said to have been having an affair. So they passed her for the throne to go for the next male heir in line. So this is a thing that has happened in history. There is a historical precedence for it. And in the show, immediately after giving birth, Rhaenyra receives a summons for the baby to be taken to the queen as Whitney and I were watching this, we were immediately just like, man, what a, I don't know if we have the explicit rating in this, but like, man, what an asshole. Allison was a sow. Yeah. She could have easily come to Rhaenyra, but it's a power ploy. Like Rhaenyra recognizes it. Allison wants to see if the baby looks like Lainor and um, (laughs) it doesn't as we find out. No, it doesn't. But to go off of what you said about Rhaenyra being short-sighted, when I was re-watching the after the episode, Emma Darcy, did I say their name right? Yeah, you said their name right. They spoke about how Rhaenyra, when she was supposed to get married, she was supposed to change, mm-hmm. you know, change her ways and be more responsible, but that she didn't. And by the end of the episode, Rhaenyra will realize that. And I'm seeing that as a viewer, having watched the episode again. She is still kind of playing at that life she offered Christian Cool, which he was so aghast about. And we'll get to that man in a minute. <laughs> um, but then to go back to what you said about why do women always have to pay for crimes or situations that could be perpetrated by men and how she was short-sighted. Why didn't her and Lenor have a baby? It's not just her fault. He had to 
have tried to help. If you're going to play a part, you actually have to have a legitimate heir at some point. But why is all the blame falling on Rhaenyra? They leave a lot up to the imagination with what has happened with some of the main relationships in the last 10 years. When mm-hmm. Lenor first shows up, he very much seems like, oh, this this is a husband who's still standing by his wife's side. But as the episode progresses, you really see Lenor is doing kind of the bare minimum of what would be expected of him in this kind of scenario. I yeah. also remember that Emma D'Arcy mentioned... Rhaenyra was supposed to, by the end of episode five, understand that she had a new responsibility to fill. But to your point, I got the sense that Lanor hasn't been doing his duty, whether or not he just couldn't bring himself to come to her bed or he couldn't perform with her due to his uh, sexuality. We don't know. We kind of have to just leave it to the imagination. But clearly, Rhaenyra can't have kids on her own. So I very much got the sense that Lanor is there almost just as the face. But he's not putting any extra effort into it. Yeah. You even kind of feel the tension that has been building between them. Like you feel Rainier's frustration from the very first scene. He's like, oh, do you want me to help you? And she's like, yeah, that would be kind of nice. Like, yeah, you shouldn't have to ask if your wife needs help. <laughs> right? Walking through the keep when she just gave birth. What's that trail of blood? Well, exactly. <laughs> Again, I thought not just the acting, but the directing of this whole first scene was fantastic. Miguel Sapochnik usually does the big action scenes. He did the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones. And the way the episode, especially this first scene, was directed and edited really felt just as hectic as a battle scene. And the show's already mentioned, like, a woman's battle is in the birthing bed. And I felt like he did an excellent job of showing that. Yep, I got to see the umbilical cord being cut. Yep. <laughs> I got to um, hear some things. And yes, if I ever wanted kids, I'm good. I don't need them. <laughs> yeah, we even see how painful it is for Rhaenyra to walk through the keep. And as we find out later, it seems like she's been bleeding some of that afterbirth the entire time she is walking. Mm-hmm. By the time they get to the queen's chamber. Oh, wait, can I ask a question before we get there? Yeah. Is the line from Lord Caswell, can I be of any service? And she says, perhaps later. Mm-hmm. Is that foreshadowing in the books? Should we look for this character later? Or was that a throwaway? I don't think any line in this show is a throwaway. So I would imagine he will pop up later. I couldn't tell you if he goes for the greens or blacks, though. That I don't remember. Okay. But, like, this show, the more I pay attention, and we'll talk about one of those lines later, there's almost zero throwaway lines. That is likely foreshadowing. Okay, awesome. But by the time she gets to the Queen's Chamber, we see that uh, Allison is better at this game now. She has it better honed. Olivia Cook plays this scene very well. She says something along the lines of, you didn't have to come yourself. She says the words very prettily and perfectly, but there's absolutely no emotion behind the feigned concern that she wears. And then sure enough, later on, we see some of the claws come out a little bit in the soft way she hands the baby back to Lainor. And she says, do keep trying, Sir Lainor. You may get one that looks like you. 
that was eerily great to play off of I felt in a previous episode when she was trying to get information she being the queen getting information out of Sir Christian and and she was like I don't want to speak ill of the princess we both care about her you know it's a trait that's changed by this point (laughs) yeah almost felt like it was a feign sort of concern even then like she was wavering but she was also looking for information and then when she got it you know she went straight green well yeah you know 10 years ago she wasn't as good at concealing her disgust and her dismay this scene reminded me of Cersei but I would say Allison at least in this scene uh, is a little more subtle in her contempt Cersei very much wore her contempt on her face she would sneer at you while she smiled at you Alicent's is much more subtle yeah much more convincing I'll give her that Viserys he's still kicking we see him enter the scene kind of after he manages to miss all the tension between Alicent and Rhaenyra with Alicent making her little comments about the child and trying to look at its hair this kind of reminds me I would say thematically there's a couple of things going on in this episode we have the continued interaction of gender roles that women play in the society. We have the generational trauma that gets passed down from parent to child. But we also see men failing at their responsibility within their own marriage and also within the political sphere. Yeah. Viserys doesn't look good, (laughs) for one. He has not aged well. (laughs) He's missing an arm. We saw that. So he keeps literally just fading away piece by piece. I couldn't get past the forehead. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's seen the late Crypt Keeper memes. <laughs> Those are our favorite, I'm not gonna lie. But yeah, the series is a proud grandfather, willfully blind to the oblivious. I think even Lionel Strong makes the comment that, you know, he loves his child so much that he's he's willfully ignorant to what's plain as day in front of his face. The series even makes the comment the baby has Lanor's nose and he kind of see Lanor and Allison and Rhaenyra have shifty eyes in that moment. He's just he's happy to be a grandfather. There is a sweet moment between him and Rhaenyra where he says, how was the birth? Not too painful, I hope. And Rhaenyra, in typical Rhaenyra fashion, says, I think I called the wet nurse a C word. I'll just say that since we're trying not to have the explicit reading. Um, <laughs> we're trying. Rhaenyra's personality is still very much intact here. He beams proudly at her because 10 years ago, or I would say 15 years ago, he was worried his family line wouldn't continue. And now here he's got grandchildren and more children of his own. There's a huge Targaryen faction now. Yep. And he's under the illusion, you know, the more Targaryens, the, the united they'll be. <laughs> and he's got grandpa blinders on because even though they. are probably Sir Harwins. They're still Targaryen as well. Yes. We'll talk more about that comment from Rhaenyra a little later because it's not quite that simple. But as Lenore and Rhaenyra exit the Queen's chamber, the note I made is that Kristen Cole stands in the background standing guard. He's very much just out of frame, kind of blurred. You see him with his back to the door when the two exit. 
but as soon as they walk towards the camera more, he turns to face them. And you can tell, like, even in that moment, he's still fixated on the grudge he holds Rhaenyra. And he's standing guard as she walks with a trail of blood following her. So, on to the next scene. Oh, wait. Just to piggyback off of um, Sir Christian, we didn't talk about their first meeting when she approaches the door. I didn't notice him really do anything outside of letting her in. Well, no, all he did was he just called her princess and that was it. You know, no formalities, no nothing. It's as if he's trying to distance himself from her as much as he possibly can. That's how he should be addressing her. Clearly, there is no bond between them anymore. There is none, but there is a grudge. Or at least one-sided. Yeah, one-sided, for sure. <laughs> Which we'll get to. Yeah, our next scene is, I kind of noted this, is Harwin and the Happy Family. It's it's our one kind of moment of joy and levity with Rhaenyra and Harwin. The two actors did a really good job of establishing, even just between silent looks, just what kind of a bond the two have developed in that time. We see that Harwin has been with Jace and Luke, um, I'm going to call Jaceres and Luceres by their uh, nicknames. So if you get confused at any point, just stop me. <laughs> no, that's good for me because I'm never going to know how to pronounce those names. Go by Jace and Luke. That's what they're called in the books. Kind of okay. like how Daenerys is called Danny in the books. Harwin's been hanging out with essentially his kids while Rhaenyra has been giving birth. Um, we see that Harwin has aged very well and we'll figure out right away. Pretty much, you know, from this moment, they're like, oh, oh no, he's the dad. <laughs> That's why everybody's upset. You get the sense that Leonor is aware, which kind of goes along with the arrangement he and Rhaenyra had made in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. And he seems to happily attend the new baby he being Lenor, but he does pass him along to Harwin to basically meet his son. I thought that was a very sweet moment. I did as well. I think it shows that Rhaenyra and Lenor, even if they're not meeting their duties 100%, at least they have a comfortable sort of friendship going on to where they know, like, that's my lover, that's yours, these are his kids, but they can carry my name type of thing. Yeah. Um, other thing I noted here is Harwin is now the Lord Commander of the City Watch. In the books, he was very specifically Rhaenyra's sworn shield. He took that place from Kristen Cole, even though he, he never was elevated to the King's Guard. From here, I mean, do you have any anything else to say about the scene? I gotta say, Sir Harwin, he does look like a doting dad. I am kind of mad, like you said, that their relationship was off screen. I don't get to spend any time with these characters or these moments to care all that much, even though the moments that they did give were so great. Mm -hmm. But no, I want to go to the dragon pit. What about you? Yeah, I want to go to the dragon pit too. Next scene is with the uh, dragon pit. And this is kind of where we really get introduced to the next generation, at least the first set of them. Oh, I called this the how to train your dragon scene. <laughs> I like that scene. How to train your dragon with a sacrificial goat. 
So we see Jace. He is Rhaenyra's firstborn son, presumably her heir once she comes to the throne. He is training his young dragon, Vermax. The other note I had here is just that Vermax is incredibly adorable. I liked the reptilian feel that the baby dragon had, almost as if it were a baby dinosaur. Yeah. You know, when we first met the dragons in Game of Thrones with Daenerys, there were no living dragons to learn from. So Danny kind of had to figure out how she's even supposed to raise them as she went. And now we get to see what it's like when you have a dragon pit and you already have dragons. There's a process in place to actually train these young dragons. And they're literally trained very early on, on how to listen to their rider, on how to cook their food on their rider's commands, etc. And we get a, a sense of just how huge the dragon pit is. Likely at the top is where all the training happens, but we do find out later when Aemond goes down into the caverns that the dragon pit is a lot larger than it looks, and the caverns underneath literally have their own little burrows where each individual dragon can make their own lair. That's how big it is. Why does he go down there? Is he trying to steal someone's dragon or something? He could be trying to claim a dragon because I do believe there are unclaimed dragons down there. Unclaimed, okay. I know that Lena kind of explains the dragon lore a little bit. There's basically two ways you can go about getting a dragon. You being anyone with the blood of House Targaryen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very much a Targaryen thing. Either a dragon egg is put in a baby's cradle and mm-hmm. sometimes the dragon egg hatches and the Targaryen child it's almost like imprinting it's almost like a psychic emotional connection between dragon and dragon rider Mm -hmm. so that's one option the other option is a potential rider can bond with an already existing dragon that's unclaimed that is unclaimed I don't want to go into too much detail because I think we're actually gonna see that in the next episode. But the key here, at least, and I know we're getting a little ahead of the scene, but when Eamon goes down there, mm-hmm. I think somebody mentioned that dragon looked like, I think it was Dreamer, which is Helena's dragon. The thing with dragons is once they are claimed, you do not want to approach a dragon without the dragon rider present. It's actually incredibly dangerous. And that's what we saw with Eamon when he was approaching that dragon gotcha but tell me if there's a third way because didn't danny and game of thrones or maybe it's explained in the books doesn't she do some like blood magic sacrifice and her eggs hatch in fire yeah that's a third way the blood magic was very much a unique experience only death can pay for life so i'm just saying all those unhatched eggs guys there's a lot of death happening you could put them together there's a lot of speculation that danny's three dragon age are actually from the clutch of one of these dragons. I won't say which yet. Okay, yeah, please don't tell me. I want to know when we get there. If we get there. If we get there. Yeah, (laughs) who knows? And if we don't, then you can tell me after. (laughs) I also thought it was really cool dragon lore how they were showing that the dragon trainers themselves speak Valyrian and they're teaching Jace that he must get control over his dragon and that once he has full mastery, the dragon will follow no direction but his own. And they mention that Aegon 
that's Alicent's eldest son, he has already gained full mastery over Sunfire. So that's why you see him just kind of standing here like the typical obnoxious teenager yawning because he's bored because he's already been through this. How old is he supposed to be at this point? Aegon's going to be around the age of 14. And how old do you think Jace is? I'm just trying to see what the age difference is between Mm -hmm. them. Oldest Jace could possibly be is nine. Though eight or nine years old because 10 years have passed. Dang, Rhaenyra moved on to Sir Harwin pretty fast. Okay. (laughs) I mean, again, I'm speculating. He seems like he's eight or nine. But yeah, this is our first introduction to the two sets of children that will end up fighting in the Dance of the Dragons. We get the sense that the boys all grew up together closer as if they were brothers and cousins rather than technically being uncles and nephews because Aegon and Aemond are technically uncles to Mm -hmm. the three strong boys. And what I noticed is, to piggyback off of that, they don't see each other's as rivals. Yeah, Yeah. that will quickly change because of a certain character. Well, yeah, so that's Again, the series mentions later in the episode when they're all, they have their training scene with Kristen Cole that, you know, when you train together as boys, you develop a bond and the idea is that you'll be close so that later on when it comes time to rule, in theory, if Jace came to the throne and he was close with Aegon and Aemond, depending on, you know, who was actually interested in helping to rule the kingdom, they would, in theory, serve on his small council. You saw that with Ned and with Robert they were both fostered in the Vale so they grew up together came from completely different regions but because they grew up together they trained together they fought together they developed that strong bond and that's what the series had wanted with Rhaenyra's children and his children. But somebody gets in the way. Somebody gets in the way unfortunately but yeah they do seem close for now. Luke and Aegon team up against Aemond who has no dragon yet and they present him with the pink dread which is a, a pig as his new dragon and Aemon is clearly sad and bummed because he is the only one of the boys not to have a dragon of his own and that ends up a little instance of hazing ends up being salt in the wound for him I wish he never gets a dragon I hope he never gets one (laughs) you already know he gets one I know but maybe (laughs) the fact that he didn't get one in the first place was a sign that he shouldn't get one it's interesting because I don't want to give away too many spoilers even by telling my opinions on these kids but Aemon's he's clearly he's kind of the oddball out even his own brother is mean to him to quote Aegon with my favorite line Aemon is a twat He's just a child right now, Winnie. I don't know if you noticed this. Allison's boys, they're already wearing green. She already has them in green. Oh, I don't think I did notice. And I wonder if Viserys noticed. And I mean, Viserys is missing an arm, so he's got other things to worry about. <laughs> That's true. He's also missing, like, a whole head of hair. Yeah. From here, we go to our next scene where we meet Allison and Viserys' daughter. Her name is Helena. She comes across as very, uh, kind of head in the guys a little out there a little loopy she kind of reminded me of Luna Lovegood I was just gonna say that yeah very sweet 
She seems to be mumbling nonsense, but I noticed some people on the internet pointed out that she kind of speaks almost as if she were a Targaryen dreamer, and I did detect some prophecy within her mumbling. Okay, yeah. See, I put, does she have visions? Because I'll let you explain the lines in the prophecy. But yeah, she says something in relation to Aemond. Yeah, in the book, she does not. There's really no evidence of it, but I I can see with how prophecy is so important in the show. I can see them maybe developing it with her, especially once Viserys eventually kicks the bucket. This scene is interrupted by Aemond, who comes in after being just picked on by his nephews and his brother. Helena mentions, oh, he's done this dragon thing before, and mm-hmm. he's so bummed because he still doesn't have a dragon. Alicent promises he will get a dragon one day, and then this is where Helena immediately says after, he'll have to close an eye. So that is your Easter egg and your only hint as to what has to happen for him to get a dragon. But it's very interesting because even though certain things are happening to get the characters to the point that they have to go, they're not happening the same way that they're written in the books. Yeah, but the books are written as a history text. A lot of it is hearsay. A lot of it is told from a friend of a friend of a friend. And in many instances, the same event is told with two or three different versions. And you're left to kind of suss out what actually happened. All right. So that'll be interesting. If and when he closes an eye. Yeah. How that actually happens. Yeah, I think we'll see it soon. From here, we get our first scene with older Allison and Viserys. And we see Allison. Alicent immediately go off on Rhaenyra's children and she blames them for having ganged up on Aemon um, with the pig dragon, basically calling them monsters. And I did like that Viserys challenges her and he says, are you sure it was not our Aegon? So Viserys is, is not convinced that it was Rhaenyra's children that egged everyone on. It seems he actually knows Aegon a little bit better than Alicent does or it could also just be that Alicent Alicent is willfully ignorant in the case of her eldest son. Or willingly ignorant to her entire children. As she feels Viserys is ignorant to Rhaenyra, maybe she doesn't recognize that in herself as well. I mean, we all do tend to project our insecurities onto other people. (laughs) So, fair assessment. This is really where we see Alicent's frustration over the fact that Rhaenyra's children are clearly illegitimate. She's outraged by how blatant the infidelity is and the series, there's really no kind way of saying it. He pretty much full-on gaslights her. So you can kind of understand to some degree why Allison is so frustrated by the situation because she keeps calling it for what it is and everyone keeps telling her to either shut up and drop the subject or just flat out tell her she's wrong. So at some point, she's just gotta be like you guys are making me feel crazy i see this thing you guys see this thing but i'm the only one willing to call it out yeah but viserys isn't gonna do that he loves his daughter and willingly blind die or not he's just happy that the targaryen line's not gonna die out well but then you know this is where he's being willfully ignorant because the reality is 
Rhaenyra having three illegitimate children is incredibly irresponsible, not just from a moral perspective. Like, Allison is commenting on the political ramifications, but she's she's speaking from an emotional place, likely driven by jealousy and, and frustration over the fact that Rhaenyra gets to continue to shirk her duty while Allison's been stuck in this loveless marriage with an old man who's literally falling apart before her eyes. But the right to govern over people comes from the people. And in order to have any kind of legitimacy in governing a body of people, you have to show that you're willing to adhere to the law. And what Rhaenyra is doing is breaking the law. And by carrying on the way she is, she's almost saying she is above the law. It's important to really understand that, again, we are dealing with a feudal society. We can't look at this from a modernistic lens. Yeah, absolutely. And as Emma Darcy said in the after show, they basically said the same thing. Rhaenyra is still under the assumption that she's allowed to pull the wool over people's eyes and there will be no consequences for her. And from Allison's perspective, I can see her point. But as you said, she's coming at it from an emotional point of view. She has a stake in this because she now wants her son to be heir. So she She's trying to get this information out, even yeah, when Viserys in the entire system, which yeah. will also cause war. And again, I don't think Viserys is completely blind because he does tell Allison. He says the consequences of your allegation are dangerous politically, not only because this could alienate House Valerian, but it would also ruin Rhaenyra's reputation. And as mentioned, it just completely destroys the contract between the sovereign and feudal lords. Why should anyone follow? Rhaenyra and obey her if she acts as though she is above the law. Exactly. Like, she has her own faults, but I'm still Team Black. Oh, same. Yeah. Team Black through and through. From here, we get a scene with Allison and Kristen Cole. We see Allison rants and raves and vents to Cole. He is still a member of the King's Guard. It is clear that there have been no consequences whatsoever from his actions in the previous episode. Not surprising because as a member of the King's Guard, it's almost as if he's the most prolific cop in the kingdom. I, I was just speaking about Rhaenyra acting as if she is above the law. The fact that Kristen Cole didn't suffer any consequences shows that in many ways he's kind of above the law in this particular system. We realize that in 10 years time he has become Allison's sworn shield and confidant as well. But he has not grown as a person. He still holds his grudge over Rhaenyra after her their one night stand from 10 years ago and this is very much the prototypical toxic man that was rejected once and ended up harboring a grudge for that person for the rest of his life. I called this scene the peanut gallery of slumming it on to Rhaenyra because he calls her a spoiled C-U-N-T. Basically, is their whole relationship just hating Rhaenyra? Hating Rhaenyra. Yeah. Alicent because Because she got to live a life that she didn't get to. And Christian, because he couldn't understand that a woman could have a higher calling and duty than just running off to get married. Even though she might have wanted to, but she couldn't say it. He didn't stick around long enough to hear her out. No, he was completely stuck on the fact that his honor was 
sullied and destroyed and wanting to make himself feel better. And he was completely incapable of how he was presenting Rhaenyra with a choice that would essentially do the same thing to her. Like He didn't care what that would mean for her. He was only thinking about how everything affected him. Yeah. Um, I hope they have a one-on-one scene, Rhaenyra and I would love that. I Christian. would love that. It would be very interesting. Immediately after saying the famous <laughs> C word, he says, that was beneath me, your grace. I apologize. And my comment here was, uh, was it? Was it really beneath you? Because you can still hear the venom in his tone. It is palpable. You get a false sense of self-righteousness from them both. And I think this is the reason why a lot of book readers hate Allison. Why a lot of show watchers are now hating on both Allison and Kristen Cole so thoroughly. Because both of them stand atop this high pedestal looking down on everyone. When really, they're also coming at it from a completely self-interested angle. Yep. Allison says something along the lines of, I have to believe that honor and decency will prevail. Which is easy to say when you are convinced that you are the only one who honors both honor and duty. Yeah, what's honorable though, when both of you want to tear Rhaenyra down? What is honorable about that? Because they both believe she's a bad person. Or they've convinced themselves of that. They've convinced themselves that in this one night where Rhaenyra... I mean, it's evolved since then. Kristen's has developed in that one night where he decided to sleep with her and she rejected him. And then Alicent, because of lying to her and then continuing to lie about the paternity of her children. Yeah. But again, Rhaenyra didn't technically reject him. She rejected a certain proposition. And he, in turn, rejected a certain proposition. They weren't willing to compromise either one. But he's the one that... He's the one that took it personally. Yes. He didn't hear anything after she basically said, I am the crown and I'm more than just oranges and a ship to a shy. Like he shut down after that. There was no reaching him. Yeah. And you realize that even in his confession to Alicent, he never brought up that he proposed marriage to her. Oh, of course. And that she said no. He never deigned to admit such a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Our next scene is Allison walking in on (laughs) Aegon jerking off outside of a window. Um, I thought this was like honestly the perfect introduction because I find Aegon to be completely insufferable in the books and you really get a a good glimpse of his character here where he's just concerned only with uh, what he can do for himself everybody else be damned i feel sorry for anyone who happens to be standing outside of his window at that point (laughs) why does he have to stand in the window though he's just a privileged princely asshole i don't know what else to tell you (laughs) the normal teenage boy thing to do that but not outside of a window It was interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that scene kind of incapacitates, you know, his character at this stage in the books. Aegon is very notoriously a flirt. He will get married at some point soon, but he's very much a philanderer. He cannot keep it in his pants, so. I mean, it makes sense. That's what they do in those days. They get married, they have babies, and then hopefully one of them lives. And then they go find somebody else to stick it in. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, kudos to the show for showing that parents have no boundaries and they will just barge in on you. Yeah. (laughs) 
this is a really interesting scene. It's a short scene, but it starts off with Alicent really asking Aegon what happened with his younger brother, and Aegon lies immediately. He says it was Rhaenyra's kids. Do you think Alicent believes that? No, you can tell she doesn't. But she'll go along with it because yeah, anything yeah. to make Rhaenyra look bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she'll defend Aegon outside, but you know, when they're alone, the scene quickly switches and it becomes more intense. Alicent actually grabs Aegon by the face, and you can see she's very much taken on the Otto Hightower role. Um, she tells Aegon, you know, he needs to get his act together. He's almost a man grown. He needs to understand what is at stake here. Basically, she mentions to him that should Rhaenyra come to the throne, anyone around to challenge her will be in danger. And, you know, Aegon makes the comment of, okay, well then I won't challenge it, which just goes to show that he's been perfectly content with just being an entitled prince. Like, he doesn't necessarily want or care to rule. He just wants the trappings of it all. And maybe Viserys is right. Having the kids grow up and learn to fight together does form a sort of camaraderie. Yeah, and a sense of um, loyalty and allegiance. But Mm -hmm. Allison's not giving him a choice. She notes right off the bat that his very existence is a threat to Rhaenyra. And if he wants to preserve his life and that of his younger brother and sister's lives, he needs to take this more seriously. Here we see Allison very much passing on her own generational trauma, her own ambitions, and her own grudges to her son. And by the end of the scene, Aegon looks visibly rattled here. Yeah, he's a deer caught in the headlights, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if it was just because his mom had this conversation where she was squeezing his face while he was still completely naked and, like, <laughs> I forgot a towel, but... <laughs> Yeah, like, this really goes to show you that, at least at this point in the story, Aegon and his siblings have had no grudge against Rhaenyra, and they have grown close to her children. So this was an interesting shift. If this had been Alicent's plan the whole time, she probably should have seeded it sooner, but then we wouldn't have gotten this scene. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's Alicent who's carrying around this fear, and Rhaenyra has not, as of yet, because I don't know where the show's going mentioned anything about killing her father's kids with Alicent I know you said she didn't grow up liking her brother and all of that but she's never not once as of yet said she's going to kill them yeah, and I wouldn't even say Rhaenyra early in the books wanted to kill them either. Like, very much the situation escalates, mm-hmm. as it likely will in the show. She doesn't have any reason to. Despite the fact that her children don't look like her husband, she has heirs now, at least mm. according to her, right? She has every reason to believe her succession is secure. But due to events that occur later in the episode, we're going to find out that it's really not that secure at all. Yeah, it's not in Honestly, Viserys, if you were a smart man, and I think you are, you should have hold her coronation before you die. Yeah, he could have done that. They used to do that in France. The king would crown the Dauphin so that everyone would make their pledges of loyalty to the king as if he was the king because the prince was technically crowned. They did that in England in the Middle Ages a couple of times as well. If he was smart, he would do it before he loses both hands is all I'm saying. In our next scene, we go 
across the sea to Essos and we are introduced to older Lena and we find out that she and Damon have gotten married and right now they are guests in the city of Pentos and kind of make their living just by showing off their dragons. I thought this was a really cool scene. We get to see just how big Vagar is, especially in comparison to Caraxes. Yeah, so big. The chest, so big. Yeah, yeah. Selena has claimed the oldest and largest dragon in the world. I had told you guys to pay attention to baby Lena when she had mentioned the dragons. It was literally her first line in the series and she asked about Vagar and where she was. Just a reminder about Vagar, her original writer had been Visenya, who was Aegon the Conqueror's sister. So Vagar has been around since the conquest. She has had a couple of writers since then and she has outlived at least three of them and the two dragons that she originally helped conquer Westeros with. Um, between Lena and Damon, they wow the onlookers of Pentos. The other note I have for this scene is that Lena's first word of the episode also happens to be her last word of the episode, which is Dracarys. <laughs> oh, yeah! Who I... knew the name of our podcast would... <laughs> Play such a big part in this show. <laughs> well, you said there's 27 dragons, so I figured there would be a lot of Dracarys happening. Yeah. I called this scene the parlor trick flights because it just felt like they were, you know, a traveling circus, but one that flies with dragons. Yeah, so it's interesting in the books. It is written about, it's almost like a love language or a courting thing, especially with Damon. Like, whatever woman he's with at the time, if she happens to have a dragon, it's always said that they liked to ride their dragons together, almost as if, like, they were going horseback riding together. And Damon and Lena were very much known for liking to ride their dragons around. Lena loves riding Vagar. And in the books, they don't stay permanently in, in Pentos. They basically travel around Essos for their honeymoon and then they do come back to Driftmark but this is kind of done just to show that in a way Damon's kind of lost his way mm -hmm. so we do see that Damon has a family of his own now Lena is his wife and he has his two daughters, Bela and Reyna. In the books, Bela and Reyna are twins. I do get the sense it does seem like Bela might be a little older in the show. They didn't specify that. But we basically find out that Damon has been hiding out in Pentos this entire time for the past 10 years, basically avoiding the politics of Westeros and slowly just wasting away by drinking and riding around and doing nothing substantial and Lena later calls him out on it but we can see signs almost immediately that whatever passion ignited their relationship the stagnation of it is evidence that their marriage is kind of deteriorating slowly but surely the man she fell in love with he had passion and fire and ambition and she kind of hates to see him the way he is now just wasting away and Damon Targaryen and typical emotional unavailable fashion you know he's unable to express his emotions and likely what his frustrations are first set aside by Viserys as his heir and then now at this point he's so far down the line of succession that he would have absolutely no hope of ever finding that place again at his brother's side. I'll pick you, Damon, over any of Allison's kids. I'll pick you, okay? 
In this scene, Prince Reggio of Pentos offers them a permanent residency. We do see that Damon is willing to entertain it, likely feeling he has no other place back in Westeros, but Lena doesn't want this for herself or her family. She knows that as the blood of the dragon, as the blood of old Valyria, they are meant for something bigger and better than this. Yeah, and Damon keeps saying, Valyria is gone. We have nowhere We don't belong anywhere. Yeah, we don't belong anywhere. I wrote that line down too, and I thought it was a very, very interesting line coming from Damon. Something about the Targaryen princes, they have this air of melancholy to them all throughout the books. Like, Rhaegar was definitely known for his melancholy. There's a couple of other Targaryens, you know, between this time period and the time period of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. Also very, very melancholy. You just kind of get the sense that these are people that are almost anachronistic and completely out of time like they don't feel that they fully fit in Westeros and whether that's related to Aegon the Conqueror's prophecy of them basically being the big damn heroes of Westeros or not a lot of the times they just feel like they're not actually fulfilling their purpose in life and I think that's kind of where Damon's stuck right now but he just doesn't know how to communicate that to Lena which feels so very even though this is a fantasy show I feel like a lot of people who've been in relationships can probably relate to this when you've been with somebody for so long and you still have that affection but clearly you've grown apart I I thought that was very relatable yeah as you've said relationships take work and sometimes some relationships aren't meant to last forever yeah I really liked Lena I'm really bummed we only got we really didn't get her for much at all I loved the actress for older Lena you see she clearly has a warrior's heart she mentions that she wants to die a dragon rider's death and she'll get it by the end of this episode the actress did a fantastic job of making us care for her in this one episode that we got her yeah yet again the three actresses and the three actors that played lena and lenor seamlessly from all episodes all did great and as one death happens i'm just sort of bummed we didn't get to spend more time with either version of these characters yeah same too i would have loved to have seen lena claim Vagar. I thought we were going to get to see it. I'm a little bummed that didn't happen. That's definitely one of the, I think was a big miss from the show, but they may be holding that moment and showing what it looks like for another character. Okay. From here, we go back to Westeros and it is the training scene in the courtyard. We see Rhaenyra and Allison's children training together. Again, Viserys makes the comment basically that the children who played together stay together. Look at that wise crypt keeper. Very wise. (laughs) He's watching like his extended family like he's so happy and so ignorant Kristen cole oversees their training we also have harwin strong kind of watching on like the doting dad this is really where harwin fails he really fails to establish that emotional boundary that he really shouldn't have crossed yeah what is he doing there to be honest harwin can't help himself as Kristen cole is training the boys he's clearly giving more attention to allison's children Viserys never calls him out on this. He just doesn't notice anything. Cole isn't really being cruel to Rhaenyra's children until Harwin steps in. And it's when Harwin makes the comment that like, hey, maybe you should be giving more attention to the younger boys. I mean, he's not wrong. 
He's not. And in theory, the future heir should probably get, if anyone's going to get a little more attention, it should probably be Jace, right? Because he's going to be the future heir. But yeah, so Harwin can't help himself and he kind of eggs Cole on. And from here, you see a clear shift in Cole's body language. But he's like, all right, we'll have Elder Son go against Elder Son. And he, he literally manhandles Jace as he pulls him over to Aegon. That was one of the first things I noticed. Yeah, um, that was a little weird. Yeah, you just, you really get the sense that Kristen Cole has been harboring this huge grudge that began with these kids' mother and now it's passing on to her kids. And this is where we're really getting a sense of just how Dishonorable? Not just dishonorable, but just how disturbed of a person in general Kristen Cole is. It's one thing to, you know, harbor a grudge because the girl you liked rejected you and it's another to basically see her kids as an extension of herself and pass along your aggression to them because that's exactly what's happening here what did you view in this scene like for grudge sake because i could see it as christian cole looking at harwin saying those kids could have been mine i get a little bit of that vibe Um, Yeah, and then there, I mean, there's that vibe, and then there's, like, does he really think her kids are not honorable because he views them as not legitimate? I think a lot of it's projecting. Like, again, Westeros could benefit from therapy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Kristen looks at those kids, and and really, Harwin doesn't look that different from Kristen Cole. No, he doesn't. So he could very easily look at Jace and wonder, like, is that kid mine? Who, Who knows? He could see Harwin as having besmirched his own honor by Mm -hmm. continually going back to Rhaenyra. He could stand on his self-righteous high horse and say, you know, infidelity is wrong and what they're doing is wrong politically. But he has been there before himself. So I I very much viewed it as he's projecting his own self-hatred onto Harwin and onto these kids. And there's also the unspoken whether or not Allison told him that Rhaenyra drank the moon tea. Why would you abort my child and not this guy? But we don't know that he knows that. Yeah, exactly. We don't That's know. That's why, like, who knows? He could very well look at Jason. It really depends on how old Jace is. I don't know how old Jace is. But yeah, Kristen Cole basically makes the comment of, like, your investment in these children is unnatural. Like, why should you care? You care about them almost as if they were brothers or, and then, you know, the nail in the coffin as if they were your son. And he's commenting on how emotionally invested Harwin is. But the note I have here is I'm like, why does a member of the Kingsguard care? all that much they're literally there to not say anything and this is kind of where Viserys fails really as a king because there is a moment he does detect that shift in Cole's body language when he's kind of throwing Jace around Viserys could have stepped up at any point and he doesn't yeah Sir Christian gets no consequences no well so on that note (laughs) another easter egg happens here so Harwin comments that Aegon versus Jace is not a fair match because Mm -hmm. Aegon is older and bigger than Jace. And Sir Kristen Cole makes the comment of when steel is drawn, a fair match isn't something anyone should expect. Clock that line in the back of your head. There is a family in Westeros that very much values honor and duty. And uh, I don't know if you can remember or guess which family that might be, but... Is that the Starks? 
It is the Starks. Yeah, that'll be a line we come back to with Cole. That is all I will say about that. <laughs> nice. By the end, though, Harwin does give up the game uh, because he is too emotionally invested. Cole successfully eggs him on, and Harwin completely loses it and beats him down. But the final note I have here is um, Christian Cole laughs maniacally uh, (laughs) with blood in his mouth because this is exactly what he wanted, and Harwin walked right into the trap. Yeah, he didn't throw a punch. He didn't throw a punch, which just goes to show you he's not the least bit an honorable man at the end of it harwin makes the comment of is this what you teach cole cruelty to the weaker opponent and yeah it is cole has never been an honorable man and we were deceived earlier on in the show (laughs) that's interesting it's like george r R. martin purposely showed you what everybody says is the honorable white knight in sir christian cole and then was like but no Really, it might be the people that you think are the most dishonorable that have more honor. That's pretty cool. George is very big on making a commentary on how chivalry itself is a problematic system. There's even one of my favorite lines from A Song of Ice and Fire. It's between Bran and Mira, and Mm -hmm. it's when Bran, Mira, Jojen, and Osha are on the run, and they're, they're going from Winterfell to the Wall. And in order to pass the time, Mira and Jojen tell stories to Bran and at one point Bran says I want to hear a story about the knights and how they defeat the monsters and the line that always stuck with me that Mira says is sometimes the knights are the monsters oh yeah that is a good line I'm curious do you think Sir Christian was dishonorable the entire time as he sought Rhaenyra's favor in the very first tourney or do you really think that it was her rejection that spiraled him i think Kristen cole is a perfect example of what toxic masculinity looks like it's the whole nice guy trope right and mm-hmm. how anyone who says they are nice probably isn't nice and there's also the difference between niceness and kindness niceness is an act kindness is an action i always try to be kind that's me yeah i always say i'm not a nice person but i'm a kind person I don't think, I I know I mentioned this in the previous episode, Kristen Cole really only knows how to do one thing in life, which is throw his fists around. He knows how to fight, but because this is a patriarchal society, we see it demonstrated with Damon, we see it demonstrated to some degree with Viserys. These men don't know how to express their emotions. Yeah, that's true. And for men, especially in a toxic patriarchal society, the only emotion they seem to connect with is anger. So the emotion builds and builds and builds until it explodes. And because they have no other healthy outlet, it tends to come out violently. I think that's really what this is with Kristen Cole. He's like the epitome of toxic masculinity. It's interesting to me that Allison and Christian Cole are only, you know, compadres in this moment because he is pissed at Rhaenyra. They masquerade under the guise of duty. Yeah. That's what it is. They masquerade under the guise of duty, but they believe there's only one route to duty. They are duty bound by their own standards. They don't understand that each and every person has their own duty to fulfill. Rhaenyra did the honorable thing by turning Kristen down and saying, no, I have my responsibilities to the crown. But he can't see that. Yeah. But see, if I was Allison, I'd be worried about this because he could easily just throw her to the side to move up the ladder. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. 
they have their shared grievance over Rhaenyra and that's what bonded them. Yeah, he had a much stronger bond with Rhaenyra and I think that's what hurt his, you know, his ego. ego. Yeah, his ego (laughs) a little bit more. So from here, we're back in Rhaenyra's room with her and one of her maids informs her that there's been an incident. So it's kind of cool. We see Rhaenyra utilizing the secret passageway in her room that Damon showed her. And from here, we see her coming upon a very heated conversation between Lionel Strong and Harwin Strong. My Um, tens of tens. Yes, both too pure for this world. So they have a very beautiful and tragic scene. Lionel feels the weight of his actions and reminds Harwin and us of the danger that his and Rhaenyra's actions have put not only on them, but on the children as well. Mm -hmm. He says, not only could you lose your head and could I lose my head, that could happen to the boys. And that's really what's at stake here. He makes the comment that Rhaenyra has been fortunate because her father is willfully ignorant and, and Harwin makes the tragic comment of, I wish you could be willfully ignorant too. But as Lionel points out, the gig is up. People have eyes, boy. This has gone too far. I thought Emma D'Arcy, fantastic job here. They don't say a single word. This is all silent acting. You kind of see the weight of Rhaenyra's actions finally hitting her. She realizes how much is at stake here. When she gets back to her room, this is where we see Lenor. He's coming back drunk with his boyfriend, Carl. And now we really get to see what this marriage has come to. As mentioned, it seems very likely that Lenor never came to the marriage bed to do his duty. And so Rhaenyra has kind of been shouldering the burden of it all. Yeah. Hey, at least she got to have some kind of comfort and it looks like her and Harwin had a nice relationship though you know you never got to hear them ever speak words of affection or anything it was just sort of in the glances you had to read between the lines and I'm wondering I mean as the show progresses if that's kind of a director choice because of the next relationship she'll get into. I mean, at the end of the day, Harwin really existed to do one thing, which is just get Rhaenyra pregnant with these three boys. He doesn't do anything else in the books. How he ends on the show is how it ends in the books. Yeah. Um, I thought this scene between Lenor and Reyna was very interesting. From Lenor's point of view, we see that he's bored. He spent the last 10 years drinking and philandering away his new position as prince consort we basically see two people in a relationship where the conditions had changed they had this arrangement at the start which again seemed good on paper but now that they're actually living in it you can tell a rift has grown between them and we see them both voicing their frustrations and i think it's easy to relate to both of them lanor wants glory and rhaenyra now fears for the security of her children they're approaching life different ways Lanor may have claimed these children, but because they are not of his blood, he doesn't feel the full weight of these actions. Yeah, I viewed this scene as, well, one, Lanor said, you know, I'm a soldier. I want to fight. I want to go to battle. So I just want to go back to the fight with Sir Christian and Harwin. Like if Lanor was there also teaching his kids how to fight, because he, I mean, you see him throughout the episode fighting with swords with his lover, Carl, with a Q. That is an excellent point. Yeah. I'm like, where were you, Lanor? If you're going to play the true father, as Rhaenyra calls him in the episode. Yeah. If Lanor had been there and had taken the time to say, hey, Kristen, spend some time with my kids, Kristen definitely 
definitely would not have had the audacity to lash out the way he did with Harwin. And that is a good point. Yeah. Um, Lenor very much seems like he's been neglecting his family. Yeah, it, it's not the traditional family, but it's a blended family. And it's a blended family that they agreed upon. So he's coming to that realization where Rhaenyra is coming from. And I think Rhaenyra is realizing that she didn't pull the wool over anybody's eyes. And they're talking about yeah. her kids. And now she's scared for them. She's like, oh, I have to be a mom. Exactly. I like their allegory about, you know, what sailors do Mm -hmm. when the storm lands. Rhaenyra initially says in this scene, you know, you don't just run away when the storm approaches. And Leonor says, well, actually, the wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. He's speaking from the perspective of somebody who actually (laughs) would sail in a storm. You don't want to do that. But yeah, this is this is one of many instances in this episode where we see men running away from their duty and their responsibility. Darn it, men. Get it together. (laughs) Our next scene is a short but sweet scene between mother and daughter. We see that Reyna, she's very sad because her dragon egg has never hatched. I know we talked about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Reyna makes the comment that half the dragon eggs never do hatch. It's just kind of the reality. It's kind of a bummer here, too, because she mentions that her father ignores her so the implication is that because she does not have a a dragon of her own Damon doesn't value her as much yeah Damon what's going on boy they've made some choices in this show that I think do hurt the characterizations a little bit because they released screenshots where Damon is comforting both the girls after Lena's death Mm-hmm. You see him talking to them on the roof of the place they are staying, and you actually see him hugging them. They cut that, so they deliberately tried to make him look more emotionally unavailable than what was initially intended. And I do think that was to the detriment of the final scene, personally. All right, I will probably have to wait to see how the entire season plays out to realize that because I haven't read the books. So, um. Final comment here is Lena tells us that, again, not all eggs hatch and some dragon riders have to claim their own dragons, as she did herself. And basically, if Reyna wants a dragon, she'll have to take the harder road and claim one for herself. I hope she does. I honestly can't remember. I just know Bela because she's my favorite character of the younger generation. And her dragon's called Moondancer, which I love the moon. So, of course, I love Moondancer. <laughs> That's cute. Oh, my gosh. Next major scene is the small council scene. I really enjoyed this scene. I thought it was one of the best scenes in the episode, mostly because I think it really played off the title of the episode, showing us the dynamic of the princess and the queen in action. So here we see more power plays from Rhaenyra and Alicent. Both have positions on the small council. Somebody online pointed out that Rhaenyra's little council ball thing is black and Alicent's is green. So they're already like playing on the color rivalry here. One of my observations is that Rhaenyra and Allison are both present in the small council now. Don't necessarily know what if they play any specific roles, but they do most of the talking. The men mostly just chime in with their opinions. And poor Lord Beesbury, he's so old and senile now that he can't even keep up with the conversation. But I thought that was very interesting. Like Allison and Rhaenyra are very much kind of leading 
the conversation here. Yeah. How did Allison get a spot on the council? She's probably just so close to the Ceres that she could edge her way in. Cersei did that too, especially after Robert died and she <laughs> was the regent. That's um, true. Queens and queen consorts have held positions on the council. It really just depends on how close of a working relationship they have with their husbands. I like that we got more mention of the Bracken and Blackwood conflicts. I know I talked about that a little bit in the episode where Rhaenyra had her little bachelorette tour of Westeros and the little Blackwood boy ended up slaying the Bracken boy that was making fun of him. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't get a rose, but... (laughs) he got a memorable moment because we're still talking about him well now you have to think that little boy is 10 years older now so he's likely they brought it back like this conflict is still going on allison is quick to pass it off to the lord of river run claiming that as this is a regional dispute between two houses that are pledged to house tully this is a conflict for house tully to handle i actually do agree with allison in this regard it is the uh, the great house of the riverlands that should be keeping the peace in their lands I agree Um, with that. Okay. Rhaenyra comments, though, that these two houses always look for an excuse to spill blood and the crown should intervene. She makes the comment that the country folk will know where the lines have been drawn for generations. This is excellent book lore here and a, a great nod to regional politics, which would have been a responsibility of the king or queen to maintain peace within their feudal society. Mm-hmm. These regional politics are always going on in the background. But interestingly enough, as we mentioned, Rhaenyra did not help the situation when she did that little bachelorette marriage tour because she literally ignored the two boys when they were fighting in front of her. So I thought that was ironic. Maybe it shows that she's learning. Oh, it definitely did. You definitely see her demonstrating more of a, a understanding for politics, especially like regional politics and the importance of maintaining peace. Yeah. And while I might agree with Allison's view on it a little bit more, I could see where Rhaenyra is coming from that if this war keeps going on, then you said House Tolly, right? Yeah. Then something is not being done at the regional aspect that maybe the crown does need to at least assess the situation, not from afar, but... Spoiler alert, the young Lord of River Run will step in and <laughs> he will be a very important cast later on. Well, River all right then. We have something the to look forward to, guys. Yes, when the hour of the wolf comes. It's always the north. The young Lord of River Run, who will be very important to the series later, uh, he's more than capable of handling his people. (laughs) Okay, awesome. Great. They then bring up the conflict of the Stepstones, and we find out that the Stepstones are still an issue and still a headache. They make comments of like, oh, where is Damon? He's the one that won the battle there once. And he joined the circus, guys. <laughs> Allison remarks that Damon abandoned the region and left it undefended, but Rhaenyra reminds her, We, the crown, left it undefended. She's right here. Yep. <laughs> I agree with Rhaenyra 100% on this issue. Yeah. This is not just one person's responsibility. It is the crown as a whole's responsibility. But Allison makes a good point that the crown can't afford to defend the Stepstones. The coffers aren't endless, and Rhaenyra says that the cost of war is greater. My comment here is very simply that these two women both 
make very valid points and they're the only valid points that are ever made because the men either just agree with them the series or they make unhelpful japes these two women you can tell within the past 10 years have come to have a voice on this council and they do have a pretty decent understanding of the politics of the feudal society with which they in theory will rule it's a bummer because if they found a way to get their grudge they'd probably make a very formidable pair together yeah i thought so as well but it's not gonna happen yeah then we wouldn't have this story rhaenyra does try to make common ground here it's probably her first action in the entire series up to this point that shows some forward thinking on her part she apologizes for the bad blood between the two families taking accountability kind of for her actions in the past and mm-hmm. she makes the offer of betrothing her son jace to allison's daughter helena and eggs for amond and a dragon egg for Aemon. Yes, she offers one. She offers Aemon a choice of eggs if Cyrax has another clutch. And honestly, if the two had been married off, we might not have had the Dance of the Dragons to look forward to. But again, not our story here. You get the sense that Alicent would not deign to marry her precious daughter off to what she would perceive is a bastard. Oh, but she says... Her plain-looking sons. And I gotta say, her sons are gonna be cute. Did you see their dad? Yes, right? I did note that the series is pretty giddy with Joy. He loves this idea, but of course, Allison is not buying it. She notes that Rhaenyra is a fox trapped in a corner, which is true, but her own grudge gets in the way of legitimately good politics, and we know that she will refuse ultimately, because as she tells Viserys in the next scene... I am cold in my grave. The damage is done. We can go back and forth with the who betrayed who first. Alicent for befriending Rhaenyra's father during his vulnerable moments, or Rhaenyra for not telling Alicent about her one night of passion. But at the end of the day, Alicent has made her choice in this specific moment when it probably counted the most. She will not stand for common ground. Yep. Team Black. Okay. Ever the honorable man, we see Lionel attempting to resign as Hand of the King because of his son's disgrace in the next scene. The series notes that Harwin was dismissed from the City Watch. He's received enough of the punishment for having attacked Kristen Cole. I make the comment here again, Harwin's actions merit some pretty hefty consequences, but again, notably here when compared to Kristen Cole... There's just no comparison. Kristen Cole never suffered any consequences for the murder of Joffrey Lonmouth. Yeah, and I'm still mad about it. I know, I know. I would imagine Lainor is pretty upset too. <laughs> you know how you said um, Harwin never was part of the Kingsguard? It just clicked in my head. It's because he's heir of Harrenthal. That's why yeah. he never got to go so far. Yeah. Allison is very eager here. She looks less of a fox that she claims Rhaenyra is and more like a salivating hyena just waiting for Lionel to confess to Harwin's infidelity with Rhaenyra. But she needs it in plain language. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. At the end, the series will not let Lionel step down. Despite Harwin's supposed dishonor, Lionel has been a good hand of the king. You really do get that sense because if all they have to debate about in a council meeting is 
a fight between the Brackens and Blackwoods, which is likely always happening, and then the Stepstones, like, it seems like they've done pretty good for themselves in 10 years. Yeah. So Lionel is to stay, but he does say he's going to take Harwin away from court to assume his responsibility at Harrenhal as its future lord. This is actually a pretty savvy move on his part because it removes the temptation and sets Harwin on the path to becoming the future lord of Harrenhal. Honestly, this should have probably happened after the first son was born with dark black hair. Uh So that was kind of a mishap on Lionel's part. But it was a good solution to what he could see was a ever-escalating problem. Just unfortunately, neither of them will get to live to actually see it play out. Yeah, I really loved this scene. And as you said, Allison was a hyena chomping at the bit. Yeah. But I really loved, I'm going to paraphrase, when Viserys said, You have been giving me sage advice, and unlike others... You do not have selfish interests. Yeah. And I thought that was great because as he was saying that line, it cut to Alicent. And um, clearly with selfish intentions. Oh, yeah. Viserys knows. And so does the director. This show and yeah, Miguel Sapochnik and the editing. The editing is just so clever. And so as my 10 out of 10 leaves... R.I.P. When Viserys actually needs help getting back in his chair since Alicent is upset, she just walks on by. He abandons him. Yeah. A grieved wife that has had enough of her husband's BS. So she's like, nah, man, you can help yourself out to that chair. <laughs> Alicent storms off to her own chambers, likely the Queen's chambers, and we see she has another friend waiting for her. My zero out of zero. (laughs) We see that Allison and Larry's have developed a new friendship of sorts. He's become another confidant that she can speak freely of her frustrations to. And of course, Larry's is all too happy to listen. And and we find out very shortly after it's it's because Allison kind of gives her own game away to him. Um, and he's happy to prey upon her. Yeah. He emerges as one of our first true villains in this series. And, you know, after this episode, I know I said um, I found him a little dull mm-hmm. because I'd already seen Littlefinger. But you know what? All right, Littlefoot, let's see what you got. I would argue that he's better at the game than at least show Littlefinger. He has more of book Littlefinger's flair because Book Littlefinger would never have brazenly bragged about power, especially to Cersei, when he had nothing on her at the time. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it turns out the unassuming guy with a disability uh, is opportunistic, ambitious, and cruel. And the entire time that Alicent vents, the note I made is that we just see Larry's watching her the Mm -hmm. framing is very predatory allison is so eager to have anyone who is partial to her in all of king's landing is there no one to take my side she laments not me and larry's i very much appreciate larry's honesty because he says he basically says don't delude yourself into believing your father would be partial and that's when she says he would be partial to me so Mm -hmm. again she's just lamenting over the fact that she's just not getting her way and she has no idea of how easily she is preyed upon by someone like larry's 
Allison lays all her cards on the table, basically setting herself up for the perfect entrapment. And I'm here for it. I can't wait to watch. I know there's going to be a lot of death and a lot of war, but I'll enjoy this downfall if there is one. In the next scene, we're back in Pentos, and we see that the burden of childbirth once again falls on a woman as her husband stands at the side. We see Elena is struggling to push the baby out, and it soon becomes clear that Damon is going to have to make the same choice that his brother did with Ama. Notably enough here, though, Damon doesn't seem to hesitate at all. He asks if cutting Lena open, you know, what would happen to her then, and it's basically, he hears the same thing Viserys heard, she would die in the process, and this is not a sacrifice he's willing to make for the child so we get a a moment of humanity from damon here good on you damon good on you yeah but lena ultimately makes the choice for herself this is a scene that parallels rhaenyra's scene and it also parallels emma's scene and we get to see lena doesn't want to just die with this child inside of her she knows she's about to die she wants to go out on her own terms and she makes her way to vagar to plead for the mercy of a dragon rider's death i'm sorry i was just thinking about vagar a fictional dragon guys and i'm crying i'm no i'm actually right there with you i actually made a note of how fantastic the CGI was here. This is kind of our first close-up of Vagar's face. We see just how old she is. She has gray, old hair whiskers on her face. Her skin seems to be literally almost hanging off of her bones. She looks visibly old. And also, again, kudos to the CGI team for showing a fake dragon emoting because the scene truly broke my heart. This scene was so empowering and it's weird to say that for a death scene but when you get to make that choice for yourself it's just empowering it's not taken from you there's really no other way out for her at this point she's gonna die whether they cut her open she's gonna die because like the baby won't come I mean, this is sci-fi fantasy in the medieval ages. I don't think they have near what they have now in terms of medical care. And women die in childbirth still today. Yeah. So for her to, you know, get on her own two feet and walk towards her dragon, which is kind of reminiscent to what Rhaenyra had to do at the beginning of the episode, walk in this tortured pain towards a destination. But in this sense... She chose to walk this way. Yeah. And and she's just sitting there and she asks Vagar, Dracarys, and this dragon. Yeah, she asks her dragon to help end her anguish and her pain and her misery. Yeah, it's like a form of mercy. You know, this is the end for me, Vagar. Thank you for all 10, 20 years that we didn't get to watch, but were implied in the scene because Vagar looked confused upset yeah and she didn't Heart want to, yeah she didn't yeah. want to do it i would say this was a good episode for dragon lore especially when it comes to the dragon bond we see that the dragon bond is incredibly strong and that's demonstrated very well in this scene some people suggest when speculating about the lore that dragons can actually sense their writers emotions 
mm-hmm. and sometimes react accordingly to whatever their writer is feeling. It's a very strong psychic emotional bond. And yeah, the scene is very heart-wrenching. I know I mentioned that in the very first scene, we see very young Lena and Viserys talking about a potential marriage alliance. Viserys mm-hmm. reminds us that Vagar and dragons sometimes feel sorrow and that Vagar has lost a couple of her riders as well as outlived several of the dragons that she first came to Westeros with. So she, as a dragon, has experienced a lot of heartache and now she gets to outlive another rider. But as mentioned, Elena is begging for a release from her pain and her anguish and and this is what she wanted. She wanted to go out with a dragon rider's death and as it was heartbreaking to watch, we do see Vagar does this for her. She gives her this last moment of absolution. One final note here is Matt Smith runs out as Damon and does another fantastic job. It's such a short scene that you see all of that emotion he could not show to Lena earlier in the episode. It is there written on his face. You see his anguish and his pain at watching his wife die this way. Yeah, phenomenal acting throughout this entire episode, this entire show, to be honest. I wonder, I know her death doesn't happen this way in the books because they kind of said that in the after the show thing, but they said, no, she deserves a stronger death she deserves her moment but with how they portrayed it in the show and how you were just talking about Vagar, do you think that might be in her headspace for the next episode because you know she gets kidnapped we won't say by who i don't know um it could be i know people have been speculating like why the person who claims her is able to claim her. I don't know. We're going to have to see that play out. I will make this comment about the change from the books. Okay. I've been very harsh about a lot of the changes Game of Thrones made, and it wasn't necessarily because an event was changed. It was because an event was done to the detriment of the character of the book. It was completely opposite from what the character would have done. Okay. So undermines the character itself. In the books, Lena knows she's going to die. She wants to see her dragon one last time. She wants to ride her dragon one last time. She doesn't make it to the dragon. She dies on the stairwell and Damon finds her and he cries and he mourns over her body and then he carries her back to their bedchambers. I think the spirit of Lena is still captured here because in both scenes, thing that is important to Lena is that she actually gets to make it to her dragon. So I I thought it was a beautiful send off personally. Yeah, me too. I thought it, it again like this was a change that stayed true to the character that it was adapted from. So I was okay with that change. Yeah. And then the next scene, you have Harwin saying goodbye to his kids and well, Trainera. There's another clever cut here. So you see Damon watching Elena get immolated and it immediately cuts to Rhaenyra holding her baby. It reminded me a little bit of like the way the editing happened when you saw Lyanna Stark basically tell Ned Stark that she had Jon Snow. And then it cuts mm-hmm. to Jon Snow's face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It reminded me of that. So I don't know if that's going to be another prophetic moment. But it really does show us that from Lena, from everything she said to him, like, this is not your purpose in life. You're not happy here. It immediately cuts to Rhaenyra. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. And I actually called these scenes, the Lena Dragon Rider um, death scene and the scene that follows. I called it the lovers leaving scenes. Yeah. Yeah, one relationship, or I should say two relationships ending so that these two people who we've been waiting, we know what's going to happen. It's finally clearing the way so that, yeah, they can be reunited permanently yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was nice that the script writer wrote it that they were back to back. Yeah, but yeah, as you mentioned, this is where Rhaenyra and Harwin say goodbye. Um, he says goodbye to her. He says goodbye to the kids. And he makes the very, very sad comment of, I will be a stranger when we meet again, but we know they won't meet again. Yeah, he also says he'll be back. We had to get our tissues at this point. (laughs) The irony, of course, is that Allison and Rhaenyra are both stuck in loveless marriages now, and both are miserable. But at least Rhaenyra did get to experience some kind of love at one point. You can tell that this relationship between them, even though we never got to see it play out on screen, it was strong enough not only to create these three kids, but you really do get a sense that they have their own special bond as well. Yeah, she seemed, even though Damon painted a picture of marriage and duty and having sex for pleasure with many different partners she kind of seems monogamous i don't know about that we'll see she's recognizing an equal and somebody she just deeply cares about all right gotcha and now that person is no longer going to be in her life sadly um yes they'll communicate by bird <laughs> immediately after harwin leaves this is kind of the tragedy of the entire thing jace asks if harwin strong is his father and he says am i a bastard i know you made the comment rhaenyra tells him you're a targaryen that is what matters but unfortunately it's more complicated than that because he's not just a targaryen the fact that there is any opportunity for anyone to claim that he is a bastard is going to be a problem when it comes time for Rhaenyra to succeed to the throne. Alicent would not have as strong as a claim for her son if she could not claim that Rhaenyra didn't have any legitimate heirs to follow her. And now she's going to have that opportunity. And that's the crux of the problem because even in Game of Thrones Gendry, who was a bastard, I mean I know it's a different character in the books, but he got legitimized. And yeah, because he came from a man. But you can't legitimize a child that came from from a woman heir? That's all I'm saying. Well, I mean, you could in theory. It's just, it's very complicated. There's even another civil war that's between Targaryens and Targaryen bastards known as the Blackfires. There's actually several civil wars known as the Blackfire Wars. Those could easily be their own TV show. Is that happening? <laughs> I don't, if it did, it, we would get Brendan Rivers, who is Bran's teacher north of the wall okay oh that might be interesting that would be brendan rivers at the height of his power as both the master of whispers and the hand of the king we would meet his sister slash paramour who was rumored to potentially be a sorceress we would get the blackfire bastards and the legitimate targaryens fighting each other very exciting time so much material they can draw from and like make tv shows for so (laughs) i didn't even bad an eye at the sister paramour thing. I was just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, Shira Seastar. But yeah, 
yeah. So from here, Rhaenyra finds Lenor and Carl in the courtyard training. Just like he said, he has no trouble training. He just doesn't take any interest in the training of his kids. <laughs> Rhaenyra decides that they're leaving. She notes that everyone is whispering behind her back and that she'll leave them to it. And she pulls up Lenor's line and says, the wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. This is after Lenor questions, you know, what will happen to your position if you leave? You mentioned that if you were to leave court, Alicent would be free to whisper her honeyed words into your father's ear. And Renera is over it at this point. She's tired of everyone whispering about her. Now she's running away. Yeah. Oh, sorry. She's running away, I think. And as you've mentioned in previous conversations, this is probably not the smartest move for her to do politically. It is literally the dumbest thing she can do right now. Yeah, it is. But I'm wondering if she's thinking at it from a mother's perspective because her kids seem to be hurting. I want to give Rhaenyra the benefit of the doubt, but I don't think that's the case here. Gotcha. She mentions that she was undermined by Alicent when she made that proposal of Jace to Helena. Mm-hmm. She feels as if her word has no weight here. Of course, Rhaenyra doesn't know that Lionel Strong is about to die, but because she is leaving, because Lionel Strong is about to die, because Harwin is about to die, he was already leaving anyway, and because Damon is nowhere near King's Landing, this series is going to be surrounded by people who are completely self-interested and are going to do whatever they can to undermine his work from the past 15 years, which is essentially to ensure that his line continues and that that Rhaenyra is his heir. Yep. And interestingly enough, one of the next very quick scenes is Viserys by himself looking at a ring, likely lamenting the fact that Rhaenyra is leaving. And we hadn't seen any rats in this episode at all, but the moment Rhaenyra leaves and Lionel and Harwin leave, and we know Otto Hightower is coming back next episode, we see the rats coming back. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. It's not the smartest thing for Rainier to do, but sometimes when you're down, you don't think straight. And um, But I did think it was very sweet of her to let Laner bring Carl with a cue. Yeah, it was a moment of humanity for Rhaenyra, showing that even though she let her lover go, she could have very easily been resentful and petty the way that, say, Kristen Cole was. She could have insisted that if she was going to be alone and miserable, so so too with Lenor, but no, she tells him, bring him, bring Carl, we're going to need all the sword we can get, but you also get the sense she also just doesn't want him to be miserable. Yeah. But I do think this is a character flaw of Rhaenyra's. We've seen her run away in the past. She ran away during the hunt, initially. She literally ran away from her marriage tour. This is what she does. She, whenever the pressure piles on her, she is not able to take the fire and she runs away. Will this character flaw ever, you know, change to where she finally confronts things? Or do you want to wait till that actually happens? Or you can just say, you know, she matures in the books. There were a lot of complaints about how season eight of Game of Thrones was rushed Mm -hmm. because of a certain character. A lot of parallels between that specific character and Rhaenyra. I think it'll make more sense in this show. They're going to give it the time it needs. But yes, there will come a point where Rhaenyra suffers tragedy and will act accordingly. Okay. All right. Yeah, because she did say previously she'll fight if necessary, but she doesn't like fighting. Yeah. 
we finally get to our last scene. So Larry's has set his plan into motion. A little earlier in the episode, we see him going down to the dungeons underneath the Red Keep. He promises mercy and freedom for a couple of the criminals he releases. But the consequence, of course, this is our first hint of how cruel Larry's can be. He has their tongues cut off and these new men are instructed to go to Harrenhal, uh, essentially to murder Larry's the Clubfoot's father and brother. And this is where we see the true villainy of Larry's Clubfoot emerge. So we get a true Shakespearean monologue from Larry's that honestly puts all of Littlefinger's monologues to utter shame. Oh yeah, this monologue was great. I was very impressed by the diction of the actor. I'm very curious to find out if he was like classically trained, but he notes that love ultimately is a burden and the undoing of most men and women. Not Mm -hmm. just the love for one another, but also the love for their children. People end up sacrificing a lot for their children. They become willfully blind to their children's faults for the sake of legacy. For the sake of love but larry's mentions by the end of his monologue that he is free of such burdens he is not a man who is encumbered by attachment he cares only for himself and he makes this very clear to alicent and to the audience and alicent is left to face the monster that i wouldn't say she helped to create i think larry's has always been a monster oh yeah i wrote you know there was the lines he said children are a weakness surrender what you should not which is basically what you said and as you noted earlier he was listening to what she was saying and as the show the after show said any normal guy would say oh hey you miss your dad i'm sorry about that larry's was just like, well, let me kill my father and my brother to make the hand position open for you because that's what you want. Yeah, Larry's very eloquently reminds us of the curse of Hall. This is, again, more book lore. Chef's kiss to the writers who clearly know and love these books because they keep bringing it back. He mentions that Heron the Black built in his hubris a grand monument to his own vainglory and that everyone who has come to be Lord of Heron Hall eventually succumbs to the curse. But Alicent knows better. She knows it was not the curse that killed Lionel and Harwin and passed judgment on them. It was Larry's himself. And And her, by association. Yes, he says, The queen makes a wish what servant of the realm would not strive to fulfill it. This also has historical precedence. That's why I just, I love how knowledgeable George R. R. Martin is, and clearly even the writers of this show. There was a famous moment, I want to say it was with Henry II, ironically enough, Empress Matilda's son, who uh, Empress Matilda was the inspiration for Rhaenyra. Mm -hmm. He famously had like a best frenemy relationship with, I believe it was the Archbishop of Canterbury and... Basically, the conflict that came up in England was what kind of power the king had over the church and how priests from the church, it wasn't known as the Catholic Church at the time, but it's present-day Catholic Church, they weren't really under the jurisdiction of any kingdom. They always only answered to the Pope. And Henry consistently challenged this because the Pope and his representatives in England were constantly getting in the way of changes he wanted to make Mm -hmm. and at one point he makes this very famous statement of 
won't somebody come along to free me of this grievance? And the knights that heard him took that to mean that he was sanctioning the death of, I don't know if I have it right, if it's the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, but basically his once friend now turned enemy's death. And he ends up getting murdered very brutally in church. And it ends up being this very famous murder in early English history. And then the priest ended up getting venerated and became a saint. But yeah, this sort of thing happened where like a king would make a comment and somebody would hear it and go, go do the dirty deed. And then that gave the king, or in this case, Alicent the queen, plausible deniability. I thought Olivia Cook did a fantastic job in this scene specifically. She looks so horrified at what her words have brought to action by this terrible and evil agent, right? She grabs at her neck, which is like a manifestation of the nervous tick she had as a young girl where she used to pick at her fingernails. She sits tall on her high horse playing the self-righteous card, but Larry's calls her on her own BS. She rants and she vents and she complains, but she'll sit by as others do her dirty work. And Larry's is just the man to do it. A man with zero scruples who has revealed his true nature to her and to us. You're right. Earlier in the episode, she got Christian Cole to out the kids and now she got Laris Strong to really murder the hand of the king and the father of Rhaenyra's children. More than that, if Larry Strong is capable of kinslaying and murdering his own father and his own brother to become Lord of Harrenhal just to get her under his thumb, Alicent has to be left wondering what will he do to her if she does not agree to give him what he wants now. Oh yeah. Alicent yeah. has with the devil and I can promise you it will come back to haunt her in the worst possible way so too will the curse of Harrenhal not even Larry Strong can escape it well I mean I hope not because he just committed kinslaying we've heard this story from Tywin Lannister and from Littlefinger when Littlefinger is gifted Harrenhal it happens in the show it happens in the book and everybody makes the comment of every single family that has ever held Harrenhal has been completely wiped out. Wow. Completely mm. to the last woman and child. Okay. Not even Larry Strong is above the curse of Harrenhal. But that is a story for another day. <laughs> All right. Another day. Yeah, you're right. She's basically made a deal with the devil and now he basically owns her. But as I said, she'd been laying this trap since the beginning of the episode she got christian cole to sort of out the kids she didn't have to do it so she's clean at least her hands are clean so viserys doesn't have to be mad at her per se and then she got someone else to allow her dad to come back and she wants to play like i didn't mean it like that but you're right he calls her on her stuff and She's just trying to play all innocent. And honestly, the stuff that she's doing going to bring down her own downfall. Yeah, I think that just about wraps up the episode. Who was your winner of this episode? Oh, gosh. Lionel Strong. I know he dies and he should probably be in my worst week. But, you know, he held to his convictions and tried to leave his post honorably. He was an honorable man through and through. Yeah, he was an honorable man through and through. And 
I enjoyed all the scenes that he was in this week. And I'm going to miss you, Lionel. He very much reminded me of, like, a more politically savvy Ned Stark. Yeah. Well, my winner of the episode um, is really the only person to come out of this (laughs) with any wins. uh, And that was Larry Strong. Yeah, he's a good winner. By getting rid of your man (laughs) and Harwin he became one of the most powerful lords in all of Westeros and he now has Allison under his thumb he very much won this episode yes he won the episode I guess my pick was more emotional yeah it's totally fine (laughs) who you want all right who was your worst week so the people who had the worst week by far were Rhaenyra and the strong men. Rest in peace to Lionel and to Harwin. You will be missed. Um, my worst week goes to Aemond Targaryen. Yeah. He got a pig. <laughs> that was pretty awful for him. And he got called a twat. Kids are jerks. <laughs> my performances for the episode, I have a couple of mentions. So for me, by far, Olivia Cook, perfect Allison. <laughs> Um, I hate her portrayal so much, but like she does a fantastic job of making me hate her. And Matthew Needham as Larry's completely blew me away by that last monologue. And um, I also wanted to mention, I believe the older actress for Lena is named Nana Blundell. Um, She didn't have many scenes, but man, did I feel for her by the end of it. I thought she did fantastic. I didn't look up everybody's name, to be honest. But yeah, I really loved Olivia Cook. As you said, I think she was giving me some great Lady Macbeth vibes in this episode. Yeah. But my performance of the week, because I thought about this last night, it goes to Vagar. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it goes to Vagar. I'm sorry. The dragon made me cry the most. And uh... Right? Yeah, that if anything, anytime someone or something can make you cry yeah let's give it up to the cgi team for creating a dragon that showed enough emotion to make us cry (laughs) yeah thank you vagar i thought you had the worst week you had to um kill your dragon rider i know it was mercy and no one's gonna think how that affects you so i can't wait to see what kind of mood you're in next week we definitely need Some, like, dragon therapy (laughs) for poor Vagar. Some grief counseling. I will do it, Vagar, but please don't burn me. I'm a good listener. Aw. All right. Well, you've been listening to Drakari's A House of the Dragon podcast. You can find us at Drakari's A-H-O-T-D podcast at gmail.com. It's Drakaris H-O-D podcast. Whatever. <laughs> gmail.com. Yeah, on Twitter and Instagram. Yes, our Twitter handle is Drakaris H-O-D. Our Instagram handle is Drakaris H-O-D pod. Please follow us, tweet at us. Rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends. Again, big thank you to Danny for our podcast logo. Um, you can find her work at Design Nerd Graphics on Instagram and Facebook. And, and thank you to Jesse Shadis for our theme song. And yes, thank you. Yes, we love it. I listen to it still all the time. If you want to hear more of my voice, um, I do another podcast called Difficult Damsels. You can find it on the same 
podcasting service you're listening to now and talk about both badass and problematic women from history. And where can we find you, Whitney? Well, I don't have another podcast, but you can find me at Whitney J. Stutz on Instagram. And I am the one that's primarily on the social medias for the podcast. So you can find me there. If you go visit Whitney at her personal Instagram, you can usually see pictures of her puppies, Kylo Ren and Chewie, who are adorable. Yes, that's all I post. All right, I can't wait for the next episode. Me too. I want to watch it. I want to get mad at characters. but And I hope you guys come and listen to us. I know I'm a few episodes behind, but I'll get caught up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. Bye, guys.